Morning Phil's Breakfast Metal, episode 45. In this episode, it's just going to be me again. I, this is the third part in my kind of review of each year of the decade. So this year will be covering 2012. Uh, we do the usual kind of structure of talk about some honourable mentions, EPs and albums outside the kind of genre of metal, and then go through my top 15 of this particular year of the decade. So again, much like 2010, this was yet another year where I had real trouble slimming a list of great albums down to just 15 releases. There's a lot of really solid stuff this year. So um, in no particular order, here are a few that I thought were really decent but either didn't have enough time to get into or just didn't quite make the cut. So one a few of you out there were recommending was Bellacore's album of Breath and Bone, which was like this really awesome kind of slightly heavier end of melodic death metal with some cool like proggy elements. Bellacore are a band I've heard mentioned quite a few times but have um, never really given much time to before but on the strength of that album like listening to it this week and last they're definitely a band I'm gonna have to go back and spend a bit more time. This year I also saw the release of Devin Townsend's project's Epic Cloud, which is sort of it seemed to be him jumping off of a kind of more positive end of stuff he'd been doing with Addicted and going in this very almost gospel direction with huge choral moments and lots of like big uplifting stuff going on. It's a solid album, but kind of way too long and I think for all the good ideas there's a lot of ideas that are dragged out a bit too much in it. We're going to be doing a Devon Townsend episode at some point in the near future, so I won't cover that in too much more detail. Um, also this year we had the Diablo Swing Orchestra with Pandora's Piñata, which is their third release, and to my mind more or less just following the pattern they'd already been doing. Diablo Swing Orchestra, a really interesting band, sort of doing a subgenre they've termed Riot Opera. And if you've never heard them, they're well worth checking out. It's very sort of jazzy and orchestral and over the top. But really good fun. This probably just isn't the best start point. I'd say something like Sing Along Songs for the Damned and Delirious, but I would say is a superior album. An album from this decade I'd possibly like to come back to at some point in the future is a kind of weird release from Poland. This is Iblis's Menthel, which I think this is the only album this band ever put out, and most of the members of this band never went on to do much else. But it's a really weird little album. It's very. It's got elements of kind of faith no more but then a lot heavier there's a lot of like really cool bass grooves in it and the real standout performance is this absolutely bizarre vocal performance often like other songs are based around telling sort of off-kilter weird little stories and so on if you remember years ago we covered uh, the earls of mars the vocal delivery is quite like that band and lyric writing similarly as well it's a real fun album like if you've never heard of the band which is quite likely Go give it a listen, just because there's some really decent stuff in there. It's not consistent the whole way through, but I always commend a band for being this inventive. A very popular one from this year that, again, didn't ju just didn't quite make the list was uh, Paul Bearer's debut of Sorrow and Extinction, which is an incredibly expansive Doom release with these brilliant, soaring, very melodic and just sad, clean vocals. Like, it is, it's, a, again, a really brilliant one, uh, like... Just, I just had to leave it out of the list. It's like, I think I'm just not quite as into Paul Bearer as a lot of like sort of their core fans are, but I certainly appreciate they're, they're an excellent band and one I've still not managed to actually catch live. Another interesting one was Slice of Cake, uh, released their debut, The Man with No Face. 
Now, Slice of Cake will go on to make an album I'm utterly obsessed with um, in 2016, but their debut, while it has a lot of the elements that made the the kind of the follow-up um, Odyssey to the West so brilliant, it just doesn't quite hit those same highs. There's some really good stuff going on here, and it's very inventive, but they're definitely one of those bands where because the next release has topped it by so much, the debut's become a bit irrelevant. And now Nafrak released Vanitas, which is a just a really solid and now Nafrak album. The problem I have with it is it's just it's not quite as gritty and horrible as some of the kind of the ones I'm more obsessed with, like in the Constellation of the Black Widow or um, and Hell is Empty. Like it's a bit more accessible and actually a lot of their later catalogue just becomes a bit more accessible like using those kind of big clean chorus hooks a bit more it's got some insanely good moments on it but as a whole I find it just not quite as engaging another brilliant debut this year Bellwitch released their first album Longing which is an incredibly dark and slow paced release if you're not familiar with Bellwitch they're kind of weird funeral doom played just on bass and drums um it's a very incredible sound like it's, it's hard to believe they create so much with so little and this album's a really good start point for it i just don't think it hits the heights of um four phantoms anywhere near that level also canomass released psalms for the dead the uh final robert lowe canomass album yeah i think that's the final one of them it's an interesting one i think a lot of people sort of slightly sacrilegious for the canomass sound because with rob lowe's return to the band Canamash should very much been recreating to an extent the sound they had on particularly like Nightfall but they made a weird kind of left turn with um, Psalms of the Dead because they started including loads of keyboards so yeah Pierre Weirberg recruited to do a lot of like keyboards over the top of the songs um, and just Canamass being that kind of very guitar-driven doom, suddenly adding those big 70s kind of proggy keyboards in there. Just a bit of departure from how they usually did things. Uh, like, I, I think it's a really good album, actually. Um, sort of particularly like the title track um, and, what is it, In the Court of the Mad Queen Bee? Like, there's moments like that are really, really catchy and really epic. But um, it's just... The problem I have with actually all the Rob Lowe Canamass albums is... They're just not good the whole way through. But this does have some highs to it. And if you ever were interested in what Candlemas would sound like with keyboards, I guess give it a go. An album that was in some ways a bit of a disappointment for me, despite actually really loving a few tracks of it, was Jeff Loomis' second solo album, Planes of Oblivion. Whereas his first solo album was this entirely instrumental, real, like, lead guitar showcase. His second album is about half that. And then he had a few tracks with vocalists. So both... Um, very beautiful, clean singing uh, Christine Rhodes was on it, who's previously done a little bit of work with Nevermore. And also Ishan, who there's a bit of a trade-off, because Ishan released Eremeta uh, this year, with Jeff Loomis did a guest solo on. Um, Ishan does guest vocals and guest keyboards on... I think I think Ishan does the keyboards on this, on a Jeff Loomis song. And it's incredible, because this it sounds like an Ishan song. Jeff Loomis wrote, wrote this really heavy track, that actually sounded like perfectly like some really high-level Ishan solo career material. It's impressive stuff, and Ishan's vocals work so perfectly with those really hefty guitar parts. So that stuff was really good. The like the stuff where it approached more traditional songs 
really stood out more because as much as Jeff's playing is always mind-blowing and incredible eventually like the endless whittling does get a little tiresome I yeah it's, it's a good album it's just and it, the highs are very high it's just got flaws uh, there was also Murder Constructs Results which would just be completely overshadowed as the second best Travis Ryan led album this year but it's it's a really fun one and there's certainly some very silly but satisfying lyric writing going on. Niall released At the Gates of Sefu, which, again, I don't think Niall have ever released a bad album, but this is definitely the worst one they've released. And by that token, I literally never listened to it. I think it's not got any flaws, necessarily. I just don't like it quite as much as um, the other Niall albums. A couple that I felt were... Well, not bad. There was a few disappointments for this year. Like much like the Nile, there was a few bands who I would say had like some pretty career low moments. Uh, Gojira released the Enfant Sauvage, which I know some people think is utterly incredible, but for me, it's the first time I'd got a new Gojira album and been a bit bored with it. it just didn't. It just didn't hit like some of their previous stuff had. Um, I, I couldn't really put my finger on why. I just. The formula felt a little bit played out here. Dying Thetis released Reign Supreme, which again, another I think a lot of people really like. But to me, it felt a little like they were treading water and kind of just doing what they'd done in Descent, to, in Descent into Depravity. Just again, it, it just felt... They, they didn't feel like a lot new here, whereas if you go through like the Dying Thetis catalogue, there's normally quite an evolution between each of their albums. I mean, it, again, though, it's not bad. I'm not, like... Just because they didn't reinvent the wheel, that's not too big a criticism. One I was quite disappointed by was uh, Orange Goblin's A Eulogy for the Damned. And I think this was eternally kind of be a problem with Orange Goblin. Of I absolutely love the album before this, Healing Through Fire. Because it's so kind of grimy and disgusting and heavy. Like, ridiculously heavy for what Orange Goblin are. And everything they've done since, <laughs> and everything they've done before... It's just not that. So, yeah, possibly it's overly harsh. There's some great moments on it. I think it's Red Tide's got some really cool bits in it. One that was a proper disappointment was the final second Winter Sun album. We'd been waiting, well, you know, seven years or whatever for it at this point. It had been teased since about 2008. Um, so Time I came out and it was just fine. It was, like, pretty forgettable overall. So yeah, that, that was a bit of a disappointment. There were some very cool EPs this year as well. Um, we had Agalox, Faustian Echoes, which if I remember right, is just one solid track. And it's, it's intensely brutal for what Agalox do. Certainly one of the heavier releases they put out, I guess kind of coinciding with the, the album that came out just before this, in just them taking on a bit more of a heavy direction. Talking of heavy, Death's by Omega released their Drought EP, which, if you know Despel Omega, it's more of that, but it is fucking brutal. FL Duaf uh, released like their penultimate release, the On Death and the Cosmos EP, which is really cool, but would always for me be slightly overshadowed by the next album they do. This was like when they recruited um, sort of a new vocalist in and made quite a change in sound, and, and it was an interesting change up to their style. Demo Gorgoroth Satanum released their uh, debut EP, True Black, 
excellent pun title. This is a South African uh, black metal band, and it's a really fucking solid debut. In the metal kind of adjacent realm, we had a few very interesting releases. Ulva released Childhood's End, a covers album of like underground psychedelic prog from the 60s, which is so much better than that description makes it sound. Like they don't do anything particularly out there with these covers, but it's just a really engaging release. If you've not heard it, just go give it a go. Right? It's strangely brilliant. Um, Steve Wilson and Michael Ackerfeld released a collaboration which I think disappointed a lot of people, but I think it's got some interesting stuff to it. This is under the name Storm Corrosion. The album's also called Storm Corrosion, where they went into some very subtle territories. It's a lot of gentle acoustic passages, very minimalist keyboards, very minimalist percussion. I think nearly the whole thing is just played by the two of them. But it's got some very haunting moments, particularly the single drag ropes, I think is excellent. And I got to see Steve Wilson performing this with his band uh, a couple of years ago. And it still holds up as a really decent song. Overall, like, it's got its ups and downs, but I like it as a release. Igor released Hallelujah, which is an intense album. So if you're not aware of Igor, that's I-G-O-R-R-R. He's a French kind of DJ slash composer who does this kind of mixture of Baroque classical music, breakcore and black metal. And this album is exactly as mad as that sounds. Lots of very dissonant melodies, bits of operatic vocals suddenly getting twisted and torn apart. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in here. It's just not quite metal, like, whereas the follow-up, they recruit an actual drummer, and it gets that bit heavier and actually features Travis Ryan. This one still very much is just out there in the experimental music realm. All right, then, let's jump into the top 15 of this year. So the kind of trends I've noticed in 2012 sort of follows similarly to the previous two years. The, the kind of genres that I felt really won out with some astounding releases were there was some brilliant stuff in black metal this this time kind of in the quite prog back black metal realm and a lot of stuff in the more extreme doom like say we've already mentioned paul bearer releasing an absolutely spectacular album actually there's some really good stuff in the death metal realm this year and i think we're going to start to see that more over the next few years of a real resurgence of supremely high quality death metal and i don't know how much of that's going to be Newer bands who were kind of the kids who were into deathcore suddenly moving more in a death metal direction as they started to sort of grow out of that kind of metalcore sound, and how much of it is because of those kids moving that way. Suddenly, your classic big players of the death metal scene had a huge audience to appeal to again, and were able to put more time and money into their releases and started doing some really amazing stuff. But yeah, death metal is, I think this is kind of the start point where we're going to see a massive death metal resurgence to the point where we start hitting years like 2016, 2017, where like death metal just sweeps the board in terms of the really great releases. I don't think thrash metal is going to get much in the look in this year as far as I remember. But yeah, anyway, so number 15 is an album that's probably this far down the list purely because I'm slightly new to it. This is Panopticon's fourth album, Kentucky, uh, released on Pagan Flames Productions. At the end of uh, like the joint show me and Rob did for 2018, we rated Panopticon's latest album as the album of that year, and it's, it's an incredible release. But the thing we sort of gave away with that is we'd somehow missed Panopticon up to this point. They formed back in 2007, entirely a project of A. Lunn, um, who 
is this genius multi-instrumentalist um, who equally into his kind of folk and country as he is into his kind of complex black metal. So I'm slowly starting to work my way back through the Panopticon discography and Kentucky seemed to be the one people were really pointing to next. Um, with their, their latest album, Scars of Man, what, what Elon had done was split it into two halves, where the first half was a more black metal with slight folk influence, whereas the second half was almost entirely just kind of more country, kind of banjo-led, clean vocal sound with ever so slight hints of black metal. Kentucky is, while it still very much includes both those um, elements, it's far more just like not split it kind of goes all over the place so you have like essentially long black metal song into kind of like country kind of sing-along track into black metal song and it's still got all the signatures of this kind of stuff you can tell he's a big fan of like you kind of wolves and earlier wolves in the throne room and black metal pre that whole album has that really gnarly rough production that makes it sound like it was recorded out in the woodland, and it's very much the feel like he wanted to get for it. The really interesting hook of this album is it's all about the mining industry in Kentucky and the kind of the battle of the common man doing the mining against the great companies trying to squeeze the last penny out of every person. There's some great bits that's dropped into there. There's like these sort of long voice recordings of people ranting about the like inhuman conditions and complete lack of lack of money in place for everything, um, which you strike really powerfully. Like, it's a, it's an intense topic, and it's really brilliantly sort of dissecting the, the kind of level of capitalism at play there. For me, I think the black metal moments really shine through on this. Like, the, some of those heavier tracks, like Bodies Under the Fall, or particularly Killing Giants As They Sleep, the kind of the massive track towards the end of the album, are utterly incredible. Um... His, like, Elon's performances are incredible. His drumming is amazing. His, his lead guitar work is really good, actually. He often buries it quite low in the mix, but when he goes into some solos, they are some pretty shredding stuff. I've always found his vocals are slightly forgettable, and I think the way the albums are mixed, they're quite a background thing. But, like, his cleans on some of the, um, ridiculously catchy country tracks are good fun uh so we have like come all ye miners or which side are you on which will get like incessantly wedged in your head but these these good kind of like pro the union uh anti-th player kind of yeah rants and kind of rousing songs like that and it's really cool like the, the criticism i have of this album is both those elements are great like he does that kind of country blue glass uh, blue grass kind of sound very well, and he does the black metal sound very well. The blending between the two is the problem I have with this, whereas with Scars of Man, because he kind of delineated the two halves, although they flow perfectly into each other, they they kind of, the builds make sense, like, whereas this, you do very much get a feel of just like a black metal song starts and then Come All You Miners will kick in. It just feels slightly like two albums wedged together. Overall though, this is a criticism of the flow of the album. There's nothing wrong with the songwriting and this is some really excellent stuff. Um, the mastering is actually done by Colin Marston and it's quite interesting because this is so far away from the sound you picture when you imagine Colin Marston doing studio work because it's normally like Gorguts, kind of, all those bands that have gone off that kind of sound, that kind of hyper-tech, whereas this is very lo-fi, very raw and energetic. 
but yeah, it's, it's really decent stuff, and I'm looking forward to getting into it in more depth. I've only had a chance to listen to it, you know, five, ten times, but I'd highly recommend giving it a go, although I do think Scars of Man is probably the more, kind of the more superior album. number 14 we have Cannibal Corpse's Torture. This is Cannibal Corpse's 12th album released on Metal Blade Records. So at this point in time, you know, Cannibal Corpse have got that completely solidified lineup of Alex Webster on bass, uh, Paul Maskovitz on drums, Rob Barrett on guitar, George Corpse Ryder Fisher on vocals, and Pat O'Brien on, I guess, more lead guitar, although I do think Rob has a few of the solos on this. Um, and what you get with Torture, like, these guys have been this solid unit for so long, so it's this kind of arch level of professionalism in death metal. These guys can play 
so tightly and so complexly without breaking a sweat. Like the the kind of the work of each musician on this is just ludicrously competent. But that's to be expected of any Cannibal Corpse album at this point. I think as soon as they got to about album four, we knew they were that kind of band. But what we get with Torture that slightly builds off the back of just being this intensely competent unit is just one of the best sets of riffs they have done in so long. Like, for me, I think my favourite Cannibal Corpse album is Kill, because it's just so bludgeoning and to the point, but Torture has got to be up there as well, because it's yet another one where they are in no way treading water. They, like, they're even trying new stuff to an extent, although, you know, Cannibal Corpse keep it tightly in a formula. But, like, the riffs are some of the best of their career. The, um, the production is fucking excellent. This sounds so huge and crushing, yet perfectly polished, and everything gets his little place in the mix, like Alex Webster's incredibly inventive bass playing comes through and cuts through just when you need it. The guitar tones is so... It's kind of, like, nasty, but still, like, razor sharp. Like, there's no... there's no, It's not got too much of a distorted edge, but it still feels really gruesome. It, it, it gives the, the kind of audio impression of a blunt implement, which is definitely kind of what Cannibal Corpse are in many ways. Like, that absolute bludgeoning. Corpse Grinder's vocals are... You know, he's he's a death metal legend. He he can scream so powerfully and gutturally, but so quick as well. Like, he can get these incredibly complex vocal passages in over these deep and complex melodies. Or, not some, yeah, I guess they're melodies. Um, we have some cool moments on this, like the, the kind of standard track I think everyone remembers from this album is track three, Scourge of Iron, where they really slow it down and get kind of like doomy and apocalyptic it has some of the great stuff I love from Kill as well of just like ludicrously catchy bits like as deep as the knife will go has got to stand up there as one of those like weirdly memorable almost sing-along moments like and it doesn't have to say it's welcome even 12 tracks feels like a lot for a kind of death metal album where they're essentially all bludgeoning but I find this like pretty much engaging start to finish uh Pat O'Brien's like guitar work on this is insane like his rhythm playing is ludicrous and his solos are so complex and ugly and like he's taken that kind of thing Kerry King does but make it more musical and more complex it's not it doesn't feel like just like a barrage of random notes it feels like very precision uh, targeted horror like everything about this is just excellently excellently done I think they're kind of slightly long the list for me just because it is essentially Cannibal Corpse still doing Cannibal Corpse. Like, they're never going to totally reinvent themselves. We know what we're going to get from them. But like them just excelling themselves to this level is really impressive. Uh, the only kind of slightly weak things is I think it's, you know, some of you will just hate all of these anyway. But I think for a Cannibal Corpse cover, it's a bit of an uninventive one. Like, I actually quite like Kill for just being the word Kill in big letters. I thought that was kind of really fun. But I kind of like their like. Their covers are going to go totally over the top, and this one's, it's alright, but, you know, you've seen it before at this point. Obviously, the lyrics are all completely and utterly stupid. Follow Home Then Killed is definitely stands out there as a rather uninventive uh, <laughs> title for one of their tracks. But then, yeah, like, Encrased in Concrete and so on are actually, you know, kind of fun, disgusting ideas. Like, I've never been a huge fan of the, the gore lyrics, but... 
Cannibal Corpse do enough tongue-in-cheek humour, I quite enjoy it. I never really noticed Paul's drum performance in them. Not being a drummer and not having a great understanding of what he's doing a lot of the time, I don't know why that is, but it just, like, of all the kind of competent, long-standing death metal drummers, he's someone I just, I've never really noticed, and I don't know what that is, and I don't know, maybe that's just a failing on my part, like, he's clearly doing something good if he can keep up with musicians like Alex Webster and Pat O'Brien, uh, sorry, Alex Webster, like, some of his bass bits on this are so cool. I'm someone who obsesses over good bass playing and stuff, but Alex Webster always blows my mind, like, these kind of cool tapping sections, like, using the bass as, like, a kind of slightly, like, different lead instrument in places, it really works well, and his tone and sound on this fits perfectly with everyone else and has that brilliant ability to cut through. Yeah, if somehow this is a Cannibal Corpse album you've missed, I'd highly recommend going into it. It might actually, because of the, like, aforementioned great production, be the perfect start point in their discography if you've not heard them before. play a kind of a slightly progressive, slightly kind of old-school Bathory-influenced uh, form of black metal. They're a three-piece formed of Thomas Korn um, on drums. Thomas Korn we covered a while back. He also drummed in, like, A Fear of Flame, who are an old, like, death metal band I'm obsessed with. Then Infernal Vlad on guitar and vocals, and Devilish on vocals. So, um, what you get with Cult of Fire is this kind of I'd say, like, kind of old-school Bathory influence, particularly in, like, guitar tone and so on, kind of riffing with his really solid, um, heavy, fast drum performance, 
kind of your, your quite standard shrieking black metal vocals, but then lots of interesting layers of like often quite high in the mix as well of cool like synth and keyboard work. So you have some bits that tend towards like epic orchestralness, but then some bits as well that almost go a bit like John Carpenter in places. The um, and the song structures are quite kind of complex and interesting. I won't try and say any of the names of them and. You'll see why if you look at the album. I should say as well, the album is called Triumvirate. Uh, and it has an amazing cover, which is the three members of the band in these kind of red kind of like Inquisition robes with great pointed uh, hats reading from a flaming Bible. It's quite over the top. And actually the kind of what will be memorable about this band for a lot of people is they that was their early look. And for the next album they sort of took on this more, um, essentially, they looked like Petushka before Petushka were a thing. And we'll certainly be confused with them in band photos. But yeah, they've always had like an interesting look and aesthetic going on. At this point in time, they've got two albums out and a whole host of EPs, and they're always quite out there and progressive, and they put a lot into the visual element of what they do. And doing something kind of inventive and new stylistically on stage for black metal, I think at this point in time, is really cool. But, you know, all of this stuff lives and dies on do you have good music? And they really do. Like, these songs are immensely catchy, still heavy and bludgeoning in places. The reason I reference Baffery in terms of the guitar is, particularly towards the end of the album, there's a couple of bits where you get some proper guitar solos, and the solos sound, like, taken straight out of a fine day to die. But, um, which is obviously awesome, you, you know. Anything that mimicking that kind of Corfond guitar style, I really like and I'm well up for. But they're, they're certainly inventive in their own way. It is that kind of slightly older kind of some early Norwegian mix with some like pre like basically first wave of black metal kind of sound, but with some more modern stuff thrown in there. And I think their use of the keyboards is what really puts it out there as being something something very different. Uh, Thomas's drum performance really is like kind of the anchor to all of this as well. Of like he's such a clear, heavy drummer. Like the guy plays immensely fast for all of it. His like double kick work is ludicrously good. And it's like while keeping that kind of very raw sound, they've not managed to lose the double kicks in the mix, but also they don't sound like immensely triggered or anything like that. It's in that perfect place of sounding like quite a realistic drum performance but still, like, properly pummeling.
And number 12, we have a band I've covered a lot on the podcast before. This is Psy with their 10th album, Insomnophobia, released on Candlelight Records. Sorry, it's yet another black metal album. I promise there's some non-black metal stuff coming soon. Um, in terms of like black metal, though, this is some out-there music. It's probably up there as the weirdest album Psy have ever done. And it's definitely one where... I love, like, really love certain moments of it, and other bits are a bit out there and strange. So, if you're not familiar with Psy, they are, they started out as basically a Venom worship band, and then added more keyboards and elements from other genres until they transformed into this hyper-progressive outfit that still worship Venom. Like, the core of their sound is still essentially Venom, but they've just layered so many other things on top of it that it's ended up going all over the place. Like, the highest level they'd ever done of just colliding genres on top of each other. So, with the album kicks off with Purgatorium, which is almost like, like this kind of big power metal-esque epic with all these kind of soaring lead guitar passages. Um, but then with Mariah's signature kind of, like, very high-pitched scream over the top of it. This is the second album where his wife, Dr. McCannibal, has been introduced in the lineup doing these kind of backing, more death metal vocals and adding additional like sax playing, like little kind of lead passages of it throughout. Also, in this album, like, and this song in particular has a great example of this, it has some excellent lead guitar stuff. Not so much technical, it's just like immensely melodic, like memorable solos. One of the real highlights of the album is track two, The Transfiguration Fear, which kind of, yeah, massively lurches between genres in really fun ways. There's this amazing breakdown in the middle where you get this, like, kind of very melodic kind of keyboard passage and this beautiful saxophone solo into, like, this really, like, shreddy cock rock guitar solo. Then we get into the interesting sort of... It's got, like, a concept album in the middle of it. So you have the threat-free opening theme, A Lucid Nightmare, is um, this kind of atmospheric build-up, like it's about a two-minute-long thing, narrated by Metatron of the Meads of Asphodel. Then the following six tracks are this kind of loose concept about being trapped in a dream, I think, essentially. And then track nine is the ending theme, sort of closing that off, and then we have two more tracks on the end of the album. And this middle concept is really cool in a lot of ways. There's some very experimental music, like... The title track, uh, Phobia, has some brilliant sax work and just, and just very inventive stuff I've not heard on a lot of other albums. And particularly, like, we get, like, stuff towards the end, like, Far Beneath the In-Between and Amongst the Phantoms of Abandoned Tumbrils do these kind of stuff like using, like, accordion melodies and so on, but keeping things very sinister. It's not, this is not a fast blasty album. A lot of the music's quite slow and ponderous and has, like, these brilliant epic highs to it. The problem is, in this middle section, they've kind of made it, they've tried to want to make it play, like, one piece. And a lot of the songs are, like, seven or eight minutes long because they have, like, a minute or two, it's, like, sometimes even more, of just weird sound effecty stuff at the end where they're trying to blend them together with like strange noises like occasional harsh metallic streaking and like nonsensical keyboard melodies and strange repeating noises but it's just not that musical and the music in between is so kind of beautiful and memorable with these cool bits of lead guitar these all these layers of keyboards and so on these bits in the middle on first listen, they're kind of fun, but when you're listening to the album like more than a couple of times, it just starts to become really annoying. And then it sort of pieces out a bit at the end with Fall to the Frowl is like a 
just like just a pretty catchy, you know, kind of straight up heavy metal song basically then a quail the final track is about eight minutes long and he's the worst of like we've thrown every single genre together here but it's like one after another it's sort of there must i think it goes through i counted it once like nine or ten genres but it's just like it keeps switching between them and it has like a very weird flow to it so the real highs like the title track the transfiguration fear which my girlfriend once said sounded very much like giant robots battling music um uh, I, I felt as essentially like it's a western gone sci-fi a western soundtrack gone sci-fi moments like that utterly brilliant but then it has these like kind of flaws to it but you know I, I credit it for it's like it's extremely experimental nature the other thing I wanted to mention about it as well is the sheer number of instruments Mariah's credited with on this are crazy vocals keyboard piano organ vocoder uh, mini moog prophet 5 Clavet D6, Monotron, Roland R3201. I'm going to stop there because it just keeps going on forever. And he's just like listed every single like keyboard synth or any other element he's gets, he's like involved in this album there, which is cool. Like it's, it's there for musicians who want to, you know, take away certain sounds, I guess. The other thing as well, absolutely stunning cover uh, done by. Eloran Cantor, who did the cover for their Lace album, which I, I absolutely loved. This one is far more um, strange, but yeah, it it's really out there, and m like much of the latest I album covers, gives no hint of the music you're going to hear on this album.
11, we have what I believe is Enslaved's 11th album, Ritir, or however you pronounce it, spelled R-I-I-T-I-I-R. At this point, much like Cannibal Corpse we were talking earlier, um, this is five members of a band who have been together for a very long time in this lineup and perfecting and slightly evolving their sound. So, as I talked about Axiom back on the 2012 show, they, they've been together since ESA with this exact lineup and slowly editing what they're doing. This is like a further ev- evolution from that previous album where they were moving the songs to even longer form rather than the kind of, like, sort of five-minute-long ones that you get to albums like Rune. This is far more long-form, big, progressive, black metal songs. And yeah, I do apologise, this is... <laughs> I was it, like, fourth black metal band in a row? I could have spaced this list better, possibly. But I promise there is other genres coming later. But yeah, so with, with this album, it has some of the absolute highs of Enslaved's career. At this point, I'm sure you're kind of familiar with their sound. They have this kind of cool black metal with quite 70s prog keyboards and this kind of harsh black metal attack of Gertel's like disgusting, uh, gurgling screams, but then far more clean vocals provided by the keyboard player, which are a nice kind of counterpoint. And he's got he's got a kind of very subtle but quite mournful voice. Like I really do like his clean vocal work. Talking of high points, this album has what is probably my all-time favourite Enslaved song. I'm sure I've contradicted this somewhere in the podcast before, but don't hold me to it. Um, but Roots of the Mountain, track four, is an absolute masterpiece and it does exactly what an enslaved song like a great enslaved song should do it plays to every single band member's strength over its nine minute runtime. like we have a brilliant memorable clean vocal chorus that repeats and in very like various varied ways we do get we get moves between very kind of subtle rock drumming to like really good like really fast double kick work ice dale's lead guitar work is used to like perfect effect this has got some of his best solos he's done on it if you're new to enslave roots of the mountain is the track to start with it is just such a good prog back metal epic early in the album we have like the album actually starts in quite an interesting way i remember when i got it i was quite surprised because i was like deep into enslaved at that time and i'd always sort of written them off as not a very heavy band but the opening minute of thoughts like hammers is one of the heaviest sounding things they've ever done it's just like sort of blasting drums with this like totally chaotic noise over the top of it I was, yeah, kind of amazed, but then that kind of resolves into a really catchy, really melodic riff, and actually the rest of the tracks fall like falls like hammers. It's not that extreme, um, but it's still it's still interesting, and most of this album just has that good vibe that a lot of those previous enslaved albums have of being kind of progressive, but not not totally out there, not reinventing the wheel, but just honing this slightly unique sound they have like i've always seen them as the kind of the black metal equivalent of opeth particularly that kind of that middle period of opeth where it is just the perfect melding of the genre of black metal with 60s 70s progressive rock and then some more like atmospheric bits there's a there's a couple of sort of interludes in this album i mean they're actually part of songs where but where they try something different for a few minutes that's not so heavily relying on the vocals or the lead guitar the, and the lead guitar is very tastefully done on this. Like, it's not that kind of prog metal where you get hours of solos disappearing up their own ass. 
Um, interestingly, it's released from Nuclear Blast, who at this point in time were kind of a label I'd written off as being a bit too controlling, sort of um, regularly forcing the uh, Peter Tagrant sound on a lot of their a lot of the bands coming through. But actually, they've clearly trusted trusted um, Enslaved to get on with it themselves. Uh, Jens Bogren did the mixing, but um, actually a lot of the production and engineering was done by either the guitarist and Gertzel, the bass player slash vocalist. Um, so, you know, they, they'd very much managed to get their own sound here. And actually there's something interesting with like this period, like going through like uh, In Times and even into E, the next album, where all those Enslaved albums have the same kind of not sound as like the songs do vary up and they do try different things, but like the production kind of sounds the same. So I, I feel very much they've at this stage found the niche of what they want an album to sound like and just keep doing that. And I guess that's fine. Like that's that's pretty cool. And I I like they have a very a very precise epic sounding kind of production to their albums, and it it really suits them well. The criticism I have of the Ritter and why I wouldn't rate it is like their all time best is. I do think it's slightly long and meandering. Like, most of the songs are well past the eight-minute mark, and a few of them just don't hit as well as they should. And the problem is, when you're, you know, when you've got an album like this, which is, like, approaching the 70-minute mark, dragging a song that is not quite as high quality through that long a time can make it, you know, get a bit boring in places. But the like, as I say, the peaks of this album are utterly incredible, and yeah, particularly Roots of the Mountain, but also like Death in the Eyes of Dawn. Not only great this album, but they became proper like live staples of the band. I remember when I saw them touring this album, they had a great introduction to one of the songs of Gershaw saying, "This next track, it's not very good, but it is very long," um, <laughs> which maybe is my criticism of this album in places to some extent. But when these tracks hit and when they get it right, they are incredible, and I still think Enslaved are one of those bands like at the absolute top of their game, really doing something new without having to kind of totally reinvent or change himself album to album, they're still managing to keep a niche that no one else has quite managed to follow.
At number 10, we have an album by a band who are very important to me. One I was totally obsessed with at uni. Like, these days, less so, but I still really enjoy their newer album. I just can't keep up with the sheer volume of albums. This is the Project Hate 1999. So, if you heard the episode of Punishing Brutality um, I did with Matt a couple of weeks ago, I talked a lot about Lord K and, like, the guys from Vomitry. So this, the Project Hate, is a industrial death metal project um, by mastermind Lord K. Um, they're a Swedish-based band, and this is their, I think, a, I think ninth album, The Cadaverous Retaliation Agenda. So what the Project Hate sound is, essentially, they're a studio project who tend to do a mixture of very, like, sort of keyboard-heavy modern very heavily produced death metal with like really clear guttural in-your-face vocals always delivered by Jürgen Sandström who early member of Grave kind of middle period entombed bass player also plays guitar with Crux like a guy who's kind of very intuitively wedged in the Swedish scene one of my all-time favorite death metal vocalists as well mixing playing that off with far more melodic elements and like super clean kind of incredibly almost pop clean female vocals and there's been a couple of vocalists over the years um on this album we this is the second album where Kay got ruby rogan who is previously known for the band witch creek but i, I don't really not witch creek uh, rich creed uh, which creek is a witchery album this is her second album of the band the first album she did with them i think i mentioned briefly on the 2010 show was a real disappointment it was like it's the most treading water i think the project had ever done and with retaliation agenda they completely kind of reinvented it and just hit the ground running in a way they'd never done uh, one of the big things on this album which really helped them out was they got in a new drummer. He's, he's sort of a guest of the band. Like None of their members are ever really that official other than Lord K and the two vocalists. But they got in drummer Dirk Van Bulen of myriad bands. Like he, he sort of, we mentioned him recently talking about Deconstruction. He played like the more difficult tracks on that album. He's now currently in Megadeth but he's been in so many bands. He's like well worth looking up. But his drum performance on this is utterly mind-blowing. He's definitely one of the best drummers out there in metal at the moment. Like, completely kind of out there, inventive, powerful as well. Like, the the sheer, like, crushing noise of his blast beats are completely beyond me. The structure of this album really suits, like, someone like him having time to show off as well. Because what it is essentially, it's six tracks but each with an interlude between them. Now, normally I hate this idea because it often just completely breaks the throw, but Lord K has been very clever with this. So, on the average Project Hate album, Lord K does all the songwriting and he'll play bass and rhythm guitar and do all the keyboards and programming and like programming with like electronic samples. So, previously they never had a drummer for their earlier releases, but for their later ones, he's done this thing where it's like, there's moments of like programmed drums often like aping kind of like almost techno and electronica kind of music that play off against the real drum sound and he's just taken like a lot of like extreme electronica influence as well and thrown that in and that that just more more extremity not quite to like the berserker level of it there's certainly lots of moves to very 
melodious parts of this as well. But yeah, so it's these little interludes, like mainly keyboard and like samples and so on, between these gigantic, always like 10 minute plus songs, some of them into the realm of like 15 minutes long. The interludes just work to make the flow perfect between them. They often do stuff like the keyboards will mimic melodies coming up in the next song and take bits from the previous one to just completely bridge this almost 80 minute long album. It's kind of like up to like the last kind of second you could put on to a CD at this point in time. It's incredible. It's produced in such an immensely heavy way, but it's very, very clear. Like, the sound as well, um, Lord Case put some videos up on YouTube of the sound of his stuff before Dan Swano, who does all the mixing for him, I like to all the mastering, sorry, for him on like most of the Project Hey albums gets hold of it. And Dan Swano's mastering job just turns this from being like not a bad sounding album, but just suddenly into the most huge sounding thing. And one of the real tricks Lord Gay's worked out to getting this massive sound in this kind of more extreme kind of genre is turning the bass right up. And I saw I, I I got in touch with him asking like quite what he does to make the bass sound as massive as he does. And he says he, he mixes it high, but a lot of it is just when he's playing, his attack with the pick, he's like really hammering into it. Playing like, you know, gotta play it technically correctly, but also just really striking hard of each note. The Tom Gabriel Fisher approach to getting that massive guitar sound on the Trypticon as well. And then having someone like Dirk to produce this huge snare and double kick sound behind that just makes this rhythm section have this huge crush to it. Sort of in the in the vocal department, we we just have this constant back and forth. So it's like thrown like a lot of it is very like call and response between the Jürgen's really powerful screen vocals and then Ruby's far more kind of clean vocals. I'd say I'm not the biggest fan of Ruby's clean singing. Up to this point, like the previous like seven or so albums were with Joe Enkel doing clean vocals and her clean vocals I absolutely love. So the two follow-ups, I was always a bit like, I don't know, slightly, slightly disappointed with Ruby's performance, but it's not bad, and the music is so complex and interesting, and the fact they've gone in this more progressive direction, like sort of stretching out already long song structures into far more vastly complex things, still kind of has me on board. I, I, I do really like this album, despite like slight misgivings like that, and the introduction of Dirk versus like program drums on older uh, albums is really like, really what does it. Like, the drum performance is mind-blowing. But they, there's so much good stuff, and there's a lot of, like, cool guest stuff on here as well. We have we have guest acoustic guitars from Tobias Gustafsson, the really brutal drummer of Vomitory, who I think is played on one of the Project Hate albums as well. Also, we have a load of guest guitar solos, most notably from... Um, Danny Tunker, who you'll know of, like, Alkaloid, uh, among other bands, and the legendary Lars Johansson of Candlemas. <laughs> like, so there's, there's, some, there's some big names attached to this album. The lyrics are your standard kind of aggressive anti-Christian fodder, but Lord K's got quite an inventive way of dealing with that. So, you know, while they're not the centre point of the album for me, they don't lay it down to any extent. But yeah, if you're into something, if you want to hear something slightly new, I don't believe you've heard a band that sound like Project Hate before, and this isn't a bad start point for this band. Like, it's probably not their strongest ever release, 
but it's certainly got some brilliant moments to it. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention about it is it has quite an interesting outro, which in my mind is something, again, on paper, it sounds like it would never work, but weirdly actually sounds brilliant. So track 10, Carving Out of the Tongues, which speak of salvation, is this really epic, probably like one of the better Project Hate songs I've ever written, like just really, really solid track of theirs. And then it goes into this very gentle, slightly sinister kind of keyboard outro, and then we get track 12, Welcome the Judas Agenda. And as this keyboard outro gives way, we get this kind of really awesome kind of acoustic guitar passage come in, and like a lovely melodic solo over it. And what, what then happens for the nine minutes of this song is it's basically all the guest guitarists trading off solos and so on. It's nine minutes of guitar solos, essentially. But the reason it works is because, basically, every time a guitarist is going to come in with a new solo, Lord K has invented a new brilliant riff for them to come over. So after this like lovely, gentle intro, Dirk comes in with this massive blast that just sounds so powerful, and then you get a shredding bit of guitar over that. Then the song will get more melodic for a moment, and there'll be a cool bit of lead over that part, and then it'll get heavy again. And this is great back and forth and between all the different guitar parts and the kind of intensity of the song at any given point, and then it goes into a sort of, like, gentle, kind of creepy fade out to the end of the album. It, it's a really brilliant finisher, and any other album I've seen attempt something like this has just totally not worked. It's the fact they've been so inventive with the riff writing that really makes it.
So, number nine, we have yet more black metal, unfortunately. This is Woods V Prey with their final album, Woods 5, Grey Skies and Electric Light, released from Earache Records. So, Woods V Prey are a Canadian black metal band, although I think of all the bands we're talking about today doing black metal, these are the ones I'd most debate them actually having any basis in black metal anymore by this album. To my ears, this sounds like quite melodic doom, basically. Um, so, this is... As the title would hint at, the fifth album, although I actually think it's four albums and one EP, by Wizard of Ypres, who were very much the project of Dave Gold, um, who originally drummer for the band, but later guitarist and vocalist, and actually on this album, vocalist, rhythm guitarist, and drummer. He uh, So at this stage, the project... I think the project regularly went through points where he lost um, other members of the band. And actually, at the point of recording, it was only him and Joe Violet um, playing lead guitar, bass and piano on this album, who's now in the band, uh, Forsenblatt, who's sort of another quite melodic-sounding black metal band. Dave had gone through a lot of evolutions with the band. Like They started out as this quite kind of keyboard-driven over the top, because they were very young as well, they sort of had that like childlike energy to it early on, and then by Woods Free, they sort of really found this quite like grim and heavy sound, like your tracks like Iron Grudge, or this really brutal sounding thing. Then Woods 4, Dave Gold sort of got this ability suddenly to sing really low, like we're talking proper Pete Steele low, and sort of doing these far, like, it'd always be in the sound, but he started getting far more introspective and doing these quite essentially like angsty, whiny lyrics about his life, but just delivered in such a way that it worked. Like, I think this is a band that would be highly divisive with people. I think some of you will absolutely love their sound, and some of you will think it is just utter rubbish. And I've got to admit, when I first came across Woods, uh, Vibre, I found them... I found the lyrics just too much to get my head around at first, but I think eventually like, Dave's vocal delivery, that very low-voiced singing just brought me on side, because his voice is so good and so kind of charming. So Woods 5 is essentially their sellout album. He sort of said he wanted to do this, like, far more, even more kind of introspective, even more kind of whiny in many ways album. And it's just this kind of lots of shorter rock songs it, like a lot of the songs are entirely clean vocals but there is still like a lot of screen vocals in there as well but it's a lot of songs just singing about his life from interesting perspectives Voss is a bit more of a kind of black metal attack um but then you get stuff like traveling alone which is you know talking about his time sort of traveling the world and kind of the perspective of other people on Westerners and how how they can't see evidence of God within them because they seem like such godless creatures. And that is far more kind of sad. Moments of that do tip over into almost silliness. Like, Silver is this really kind of sad song which he feels the insistent need to put puns in, which just I, takes, me, takes me out of it a bit. But in a lot of ways, like, this is... Yeah, to my mind, like, actually quite a kind of straightforward rock album, just executed really well, because it has the emotional punch there. Like, nothing about it's amazingly complex, or even, I guess, wholly original. It's just, it just hits the right emotional note for me to really enjoy it. Sort of, um, Lightning and Snow and Death is Not an Exit, both the openers are really... 
I just really evoke a lot of emotion. And then you have stuff like track seven, career suicide is not real suicide, is is this kind of essentially lampooning what he's doing on this album, this idea that people are going to crucify him for this massive change in direction of sound, but he doesn't really care because, let's be honest, it doesn't matter. Modern Life Architecture is really hefty in both emotional and kind of just the weight of the riffs, like really slow in places. This part that really gives me that kind of doomy feel and has some of his absolute lowest vocals. Like, I can't sing low enough to hit some of the notes that he hits on this album. It's crazy. The only, the only kind of real disappointment in this album for me actually is Kiss My Ashes Goodbye towards the end. It's like a 12 minute long song, which essentially has about four minutes of good riffs in it. So the interesting thing about this album is this would be the final Wizard of Ypres album because sadly Dave Gold actually died in 2011 around the time of recording. Um, he was involved in a kind of, from the brief description you can find online, a kind of unexplained traffic accident. In some ways, like particularly, there's some particularly haunting stuff in the final track of the album, Alternative Ending, that sort of alludes to this. Like, and... I won't get into it more depth, it's, it's good, it's a good one to just go and find yourself, but there is some very interesting stuff about this, because, yeah, essentially he died just as the album was recorded, so it was mixed and released post, uh, post his death, um, and, like, track, like, tracks towards the end, like, Finality, because of this, have an incredible emotional punch, like, this is definitely a tearjerker of an album, if you want something that will just, you know, tug at the heartstrings, I'd highly recommend giving this one a go. Woods 4 and Woods 3, I'd say, also are really good albums and worth checking out. And if you want something that's a bit more black metal, they both definitely hit that kind of camp a bit more. But yeah, this was a really good way for them to end their career. Although, uh, my, my friend Tamara did find um, his old Twitter account and found this really tragic tweet from God, about two months before he died, just being like, oh, the new Woods album's really depressing. I promise the next one will be much happier. And unfortunately, we won't ever be getting this. But we do have some incredible artifacts to remember Dave Gold by because he did make some really solid music in his career.
number eight, we have the German funeral doom band Ahab with their third album, The Giant. So me and Rob covered Ahab back on the podcast years back now, um, Divinity of the Ocean, their second album. So Ahab are a funeral doom band, but a funeral doom band that do include a lot of clean vocals. Like, they don't quite have the kind of extremity of bands like Esoteric or Mournful Congregation. They they do rely more on long, mournful passages, but they certainly have that very long-form song structure. So, unsurprisingly with the name, their first album was about the story of Moby Dick. Their second album was about the story of the Wessex, which is a real-life story that um, Moby Dick was loosely based on. And with the third album, they kind of leapt uh, inspirations into the Edgar Allan Poe story, I believe, by the same name of The Giant. And actually with it, there's been a big change-up in art style. So the other two albums have utterly beautiful covers, but they're very much like look like old-style paintings, whereas The Giant really modern style artwork for it, very almost cartoony but in a, in a quite epic manner. In terms of songwriting, um, I'd say between each Ahab album they've got mildly more accessible, so the first album is incredibly brutal, whereas Divinity of the Ocean is much more mournful, um, and the giant, it's just that bit more accessible again, it's not quite as heavy, it's not quite as extreme, but it's still still really decent um it was released on napalm records um and follows largely the structure of most ahab albums it's about six tracks all over the 10 minute mark the whole album's almost like 70 minutes long um but it starts in very strong fashion with the epic further south which has brilliant like this is a very big staple of just going from like three minute long intro before any vocals come in and then like these great guttural heavy screams um interspersed with these incredibly beautiful soulful clean vocals um the interesting thing with ahab as well is since around 2008 um they haven't had a lineup change there's the same four guys of two guitarists bass and drums there's a couple of cool guest musicians on this. We get uh, Herbrand Larson of Enslave, second appearance in this list, doing some guest clean vocals, and his his vocal style is quite different to uh, Daniel's, so there, there's some nice interplay there. Another sort of interesting thing, after the epic of Further South, was just an immensely catchy ending, we get something interesting. We slightly change stuff up with the second track, Aeon's Lapse, and Daniel does this new kind of like mid-range, almost like, hardcore style like quite clean shouted kind of vocals which is just why we've not heard from him before and then that like kind of coalesces into a really brilliant melodic clean vocal ending then one of the highlights of the album deliverance shouting at the dead it just the second half of this comes in with like this utterly epic riff and it's all sort of, the song feels like a great build to this amazing riff towards the end so the only real issue i have with this album i say it wouldn't quite rate it as highly as um say the the previous two is because the next two tracks slightly lose their way particularly fathoms deep below it's just a bit boring but the, the moments of greatness on this are so high they, there's some truly 
epic stuff going on. It's got, like, much like Woods before, it's got a huge emotional punch to it in places, but then it's just like, utterly brutal in others. Like, the screams are so low and disgusting. The ending as well, like, very much echoing the book, is this great build-up to a sudden cut-to-black, like, stop. Um, if you know anything about the original Edgar Allan Poe story, it just... It's sort of, as soon as it, it gets to a big climactic moment, and that's just the end of it, like, cuts straight off it. With, with Ahab, like, I don't know how much credit to give him for the... The lyric writing is very cool, because they just follow the path of the book. Like, how different is this in some ways to Iron Maiden singing about whatever book Steve Harris has read this week? Like, I guess because it's thematically follows, that works quite well. As well, they, they did the really nice thing of, like, every track in the lyric book has another little beautiful bit of artwork to go with it. So it's, it's you know, getting it on CD or vinyl is a really nice package to look at. While I wouldn't say this is the Ahab album to start on, they've done better stuff, it's still utterly brilliant and, like, the guest performances really help it. And the fact he's gone a bit more melodic and a bit more accessible... Just meant it was a varied sound from the previous album because we've already got 70 minutes that sounds like Divinity of the Oceans. We don't need them to do that again. And they would go on to, and I'm sure we'll cover it later on one of these shows, but on the next album they would go on to reinvent their sound again. So th there's some really interesting stuff going on here. And if you want to get into that more slow, like long form end of Doom, I think Ahab are a really good band to start with.
And number seven, we have um, an album I covered at great length recently on the podcast. This is Dawnbringers Into the Lair of the Sun God. This is a brilliant um, kind of heavy metal with a slight tinge of black metal and a few other things. Um, progressive concept album is just executed perfectly. Go back to my uh, the episode on uh, American Black Metal released recently to hear me talking about this one at length, but highly recommend it if you like good guitar solos and so on. So I'll move straight on to number six, which is, I think, the first time we've actually talked about this band on the podcast, but this is the incredibly influential Meshuggah with their album Coloss. So at this point, you know, you, you, you know what Meshuggah sound like. Every, like. You'd have to have been living under a stone to not have kind of felt the influence of like this kind of in some ways proto-gent sound I guess but this kind of in like as if someone made like thrash metal way more chunky kind of huge guitar sound mixed with like crazy poly rhythms and so on. Now Coloss just showed off this kind of point where Meshuggah just hit this like perfect rhythm. The album before Obzen was equal parts like chaotic and confusing and just catchy as fuck, heavy, to-the-point riffing. I, and I utterly loved it, and that's where I first got into Meshuggah. And Coloss just follows off where that left off. Like, some of the moments this album are just heavy as all fuck. I Am Colossus, which is just this... Just incredibly pummeling thing. Like, mainly uh, led by Jens Kidman's, like, really brutal vocals over the top of it. Then we go into one of my favourite tracks of the album, the the demon's name is Surveillance, which very much in the vein of like combustion from the previous one, is more about the kind of catchy, fast riffing. So in many ways, like you know the Meshuggah sound, like and this is just another modern Meshuggah album. They're not kind of reinventing what they do, but what they do is so out there and unique. Like despite there being a whole genre apparently influenced by them. Nothing in it really sounds like Meshuggah. Like, no one else can quite, like, kind of quite do what uh, Frederick Fornenfell and Thomas Hacker do. Like, that the, that core of a band, I mean, I'm pretty playing down the other people's involvement in it, but that drummer and guitarist, the way they construct songs, the way they write is total madness. But then they play it with such precision that it, it, it kind of resolves as something you can bang your head along to still. And this album is just more of that with some absolute highlights of um don't look down and marrow um demerge as well like it's just a collection of 10 really fucking solid Meshuggah tracks there's a few cool things they add in that i felt there was less of on the previous album like they attempt a few more um solos on this and when frederick does a solo it always sounds like just music from space like no one else plays a guitar quite like that it, Everything about this is great. Like, Meshuggah have definitely found their niche over those years. Like, I think Obzen, for me, was the point where they finally got the guitar tone to be what they wanted. This kind of, like, absolute wall of heaviness with those huge eight strings. Uh, but everything is so clear and so hefty on this. Like, it's a very clean album, but it still crushes you. I'm struggling to say anything useful about Meshuggah because... At this point, we all just obviously know they're good, but Colossus has got to be up there as one of their really strong albums.
taking things in a completely different direction. At number five, we have Al Namrud's Kit Al Afwan, which is um, kind of symphonic black metal from Saudi Arabia. Uh, we covered this band briefly, actually, yeah, fairly in depth actually on our Best of 2018 show. But this album from 2012 is a very different affair. Is in so I think basically for every single one of this band's albums, they've had a different vocalist, and like on that latest album, their approach was quite clean vocal, whereas in this full uh, full down the line black metal shrieking, and this is a much heavier affair. So this is, I'd say, essentially symphonic black metal, but it's got that great kind of Middle Eastern folk tinge to it, rather than like the you know the more classical pomp you get in a lot of uh, Norwegian symphonic black metal. So, if you don't know much about Al Namrud, they are essentially a band whose very existence is completely illegal. They're, none of the members of the band have been officially identified because they'd probably be killed for it. So, everything they do is immensely underground. They have to go to extreme lengths just to maintain their own gear. Like, there is a lot of... Like, there's a lot of roughness to their albums and it's necessary because they just can't do it another way. Um... With this album, like, with with this band actually as a whole, the core of it has always been Mephistos on guitar and bass and Ostrom as the kind of keyboard synth programmer kind of guy. And then we have a guest drummer of Adal, who's just on this album as well. Although, it's one of those things where I couldn't tell you whether the drums were programmed or not, but they've got a drummer credited, so they must not be, but it's a very, very raw drum sound. So what you get is just this heavy aggressive black metal but with quite high up in the mix layers of very sort of I guess symphonic but yeah just like that kind of more folky kind of symphonic sound if that makes any sense the album starts with this cool kind of like orchestral build up and then the first just track just kicks in and most of his album kind of stays down this line of this very intense feel like particularly like that first track um, or first proper track Min Trab Alan Jahel is just pummeling throughout and most tracks on the album keep on that kind of line like it doesn't outstay as well when sort of doing this either there's a lot of there's a lot of changes what they do like on the kind of orchestral side of things to say the thing you'll have to get past listening to this band is the fact it's very rough and ready it's very raw sounding which for this genre is kind of against the norm but it, it's got a lot of, like, fire and passion to it. And the fact these guys can do this under these kind of conditions is kind of incredible, because even if you ignore any of, like, the history or sort of politics surrounding the band, it's still an absolutely brilliant album with just some rough edges. Like, the songwriting comp composition is fucking brilliant. I highly advise, like, you check out most of the stuff. Like, this, these two are really dedicated songwriters they really do know what they're doing um and just like they're just having that middle east vibe just makes it that bit different to a like essentially an oversaturated genre of metal <laughs>
And number four, we have the fifth album by Funeral Doom slash Death Doom Heavyweights Invoken, released on Profound Law Records. So these guys are like an American band who have been around since like the late 90s doing pretty disgusting sounding Funeral Doom slash Death Doom. Like, although they might be lumped in with bands like um, Ahab, who we covered earlier, there's certainly a massive difference in the sound between the two. Evoken are entirely screams, sort of half like real guttural death metal vocals and half these kind of more pain black metal kind of shrieks. He's a really intense vocalist and also guitarist for the band. The lineup is they're a five piece with two guitars, drums, bass and keyboards. So like another difference from Ahab, Ahab don't really rely on keyboards for a lot of their sound, whereas a lot of the kind of more melodic elements in Evoken are done by the keyboards. Whereas Ahab have a lot of these clean vocal, very melodic sections, Evoken are entirely scream. Vocalist uh, John Paradiso does this kind of... Um, sort of half like real guttural death metal vocals and half these kind of more pain black metal kind of shrieks. He's a really intense vocalist and also guitarist for the band. The lineup is they're a five piece with two guitars, drums, bass and keyboards. So like another difference from Ahab, Ahab don't really rely on keyboards for a lot of their sound whereas a lot of the kind of more melodic elements in Evoken are done by the keyboards. For fans of like newer extreme metal, I think bands like Spectral Voice definitely take a big influence from Evoken. They do a lot of that similar thing of like, while one guitar and sort of the drums and bass will be doing quite heavy and slow, you'll have another guitar ringing out on these kind of very epic sounding, very clean notes, but also like often slightly dissonant or kind of just unsettling melodies played on one guitar which is normally quite high up in the mix then they're kind of more brutal rhythm section doing something else and then at moments it'll coalesce into just like horrible death metal but always like mid-paced or slower death metal we never get into like true kind of Nile style blasting away kind of stuff but it's it's what you'd recognise as death metal in a lot of places. Just the song structures are dragged out over a much longer time. And before these real heavy moments, there's a real build to them. The The album's like huge in, in that sense as well. It's about 70 minutes long. Most of the tracks are like well over the 10 minute mark. Bar a couple of um, little instrumental interludes. Normally like kind of odd keyboard passages linking the two. This album is definitely one of the stronger of Evoken's career. So they're kind of famed for their, I believe, third album, Antithesis of Light, being like, that's like the funeral doom staple. If you're into the genre and don't own that album, that's, I'd say, really a point to go for. And you can see, like, this band has had that effect where so many other more extreme doom bands have taken things from their sound. Like, Evoken, to me, are like the band who jumped off from more bands like... Um, Dismemberment, Ferragothan and Winter were doing on those like early extreme releases and just focus that down into the more heavier, bleak elements to create this incredibly messed up, unsettling sound. It's, as I say, it's a long listen, but if you let yourself sort of go with it, it has a real emotional punch to it. This is helped as well by the, the album cover for Atramors is absolutely beautiful it's easily like the the album cover of of this year for me it's like a kind of picture of um a load of kind of cloaked 
weird figures sort of walking away from the camera over this like bleak marshscape. It's just a very very unsettling image that fits so well with the sort of the music on display here. There's some cool other bits that like might be less expected in this genre. Like they do use the odd guitar solo, particularly like towards the end of Grim Eloquence. There's a really cool, very um sort of first wave of death metal sounding bit of shreddy lead in there. And then that song and um the next track, an intrinsic divide both have more of the kind of really grim old school death metal. Like it's almost like an autopsy vibe to some of it, but then comes back to these sort of bleaker elements with sort of clean stuff and keyboards echoing over the top. It's all just very focused to make this really heavy, upsetting sound. And in this kind of genre, Evoken are definitely sort of top of their game. Like, there's not many bands that quite compare, particularly Antithesis of Light and this album, Atramors, are, are like essential for, for listeners of this kind of style. On the opposite end of the emotional spectrum, we have the third album by the French band Alceste, Le Voyage du Lame. Um, this is kind of quite going to cover quite a lot of the ground I covered when I covered their previous album in 2010, Eclairs de Lune. The real difference between these two releases is basically Alceste have clearly gone on more of a melodic path. So, for those who didn't hear that episode um, or, or are unfamiliar with Alceste, they're essentially a very, very post-black metal band. Like, they've gone all the way through kind of the extremes of black metal to the point where 
they're actually extremely melodic, kind of a lot of very melancholy stuff, but then some almost like joyful, triumphant stuff. They're one of those rare bands who can basically pull off happy sounding metal in places, which I know is a massive turn off to a lot of people, but I think the influence of a band like Alcest is quite far reaching. Like you can see elements of what they do appearing in a lot of post rock um, and post metal bands now, like sort of with, with the benefit of, you know, 10 years age on like particularly this and the previous album which were very successful they would in future with shelter kind of completely cross into the non-metal category but at this point it's still definitely some of the extremity there it is just overall a very big and beautiful sounding album so since the previous album uh alcest had solidified their lineup of niche doing vocals, guitar, bass, and keyboards, and Winterhalter on drums, and that would be the lineup for the band from then till, till I think it's still the current recording lineup for them. And what the sound of Alcest is, really, is sort of very melodic, um, often clean-toned guitar parts over kind of complex interlocking. You have multiple guitar parts and multiple, and sort of like a different a bass melody that's differing from the two of them, often with layers and layers of keyboards and these soaring high-pitched clean vocals over the top of it. It's a very layered sound. Like, while nothing's particularly technical or complex, the amount of layers of stuff going on is what really drives the core of Alcest's sound. And as I say, this album, they've pulled more away from the black metal. The previous album, almost every song had quite a lot of screams in. There was less of a reliance on the clean vocals, whereas this album, you'd be, like, you could go through it and not really notice there being any screams on it at all. It's, it's not an extreme album in any way, particularly, but it still delivers the emotional punch of the previous album. It still has that, like, ability to get you right by the feelings, like, um, or tempts the opener. Just the little guitar melody comes in the start of it, gets me every time. It's amazing. It really, and basically the album keeps up like that throughout. There's, like, the only the only issue I have with this one, I say, there's a few moments on it which drag a bit more than the previous one. Like, I, I remember when I first got it, I did find it a touch too kind of syrupy in places, although I've grown to really love it now. So it might be one that, if you've not heard before, takes a couple of listens. But I think definitely in Alsace's catalogue, it stands as one of the really good ones they've done. Certainly it's got more to it than the next one, Shelter. And I don't, I think at this point in time as well, the influence of this can't be, can't be like kind of exaggerated enough. Like they definitely inspired or led that wave of bands pulling away from black metal to try something kind of new and different while still maintaining this kind of sound. Because I think the real link actually at this point to the black metal is Winterhalter's drumming. So a lot of these very melodic passages would still have these like really fast double kicks and like near blasting drums, but over these really super melodic beautiful parts. It's a very strange sound they managed to pull together there, but for some reason, this is this is Alcest's thing. Uh, much like the previous album as well, the, the cover is perfectly encapsulating the kind of sound of the album. It's this really beautiful, like, hand-drawn picture of, like, a kind of almost mythical-looking peacock in a kind of forest scape, and it just so well fits this kind of bright and airy music. Yeah, huge fan of this band. I, I think Niche's writing is, is mind-blowing, and I'm really glad that 
sort of he's pulling black metal for some people in this kind of direction. Number two on this list, we have an crazily important extreme metal album. This is Cattle Decapitation's sixth album, The Monolith of Inhumanity, released on Metal Blade Records. So Cattle Decapitation are a band that have been going since the late 90s, doing this kind of very extreme, disgusting kind of death metal slash grindcore. The core of the band for most of the time has always been Travis Ryan on vocals and Josh Elmore on guitar. At this point though, um, since the previous album, Harvest Floor, They've been joined by drummer Dave McGraw and on this album, bass player Derek Engman. At this stage as well, there's been a real shift in Capital Decapitation sound. Well, I think actually almost a gradual shift across all their albums. Like they started off far more in the hideous grind realm and slowly became more accessible with like more kind of longer form songs. And Monolith of Inhumanity was definitely the point where this suddenly came together in something that actually was bizarrely commercially successful. Harvest Floor was an interesting one, the previous album, because after two near-perfect death crime releases of Humanur and Karma Bloody Karma, they sort of... Something went a bit weird with Harvest Floor, and it became... It was a bit more accessible, but also just not quite as good. Whereas Monolith Humanity, they kind of managed to find the balance again, they, and just got just got all the best elements of like the more kind of riff driven songs but still keeping some of the craziness like and when i say this is an accessible release this is an accessible release to people who already get pretty extreme stuff i guess it's just there's suddenly i think something in this that could totally appeal to like fans of like deathcore and and kind of genres like that whereas i don't think humanure would be the start point for that kind of thing 
So if you're not familiar with casual decapitation, the, the thing that really sells them above anything else is Travis Ryan is putting himself out there as one of the true extreme metal vocal greats. Purely in terms of variety, this man does absolutely everything like from super high like screams held for inhumanly long amounts of time to these kind of absolutely disgusting guttural noises that don't don't even quite sound human anymore and then you throw in all sorts of other weird stuff i remember seeing like um the making of i think it was this album where like at some points he just like gets noises by just like spitting next to the microphone and so on and the big change in this album, something that's now come like a large part of their sound, is these essentially not clean vocals. Like, he does this kind of, like, kind of, like, almost melodic scream, but he said he produces by kind of screaming with his tongue stuck out of his mouth. Like, so he does it on a few tracks, particularly um, uh, A Living, Breathing Piece of Meat and Kingdom of the Tyrants on this album. And then on the next album, the Anthropocene Extinction, they, this comes back a lot more as well. And I think this is one of the hooks that kind of has got people more on board with this. I've got to admit, when I was listening to this album, first heard those vocals, I... I was obsessed with them. I couldn't believe... I, I just couldn't get my head around what was going on there. But Travis Ryan is incredible, but I shouldn't downplay the abilities and everything that the others are bringing to this band. Like, the drumming and guitar work on this is fucking incredible. It is such a fast album when they want to go into it. Like, some of these riffs go off at such pace. And with this kind of newer sound, it's very, um, it's very well produced and, like... The drums utterly pummel you. Like, Dave McGraw is a powerhouse of a drummer on this. Uh, Josh Elmore does some incredible stuff with, like, some of his shredding lead guitar parts are absolutely face-melting. But there's also, there are moments of more melodic stuff. And the thing that you kind of get out of this that um, possibly wasn't so much there on the previous albums, of just, it's incredibly catchy. The, you, you have a load of really memorable song. Aforementioned Living Breathing Piece of Meat, Projectile Ovulation has got some really memorable riffs. Uh, even, like, Do Not Resuscitate and Your Disposal are borderline, like, sing-along. So as well, there's a load of um, fun guest vocals on this. The, the first track has backing vocals from the entirety of uh, Survival Carnage. And my particular favourite on track six, Projectile Ovulation, we have uh, Mike Majeski of Devourment, delivering some insane gutturals. It's like, Travis Ryan can do pretty much everything in death metal, vocal-wise, other than get quite as low as Mike does. These these gurgling vocals are crazy. But if you've heard if you've heard Devourment, you you know what they sound like. But they're absolutely excellent. The other thing I've got to mention with this is this would be a really solid album up to if you stopped at your disposal but we get a very interesting ending with the last two tracks of the monolith is just this like kind of atmospheric keyboard piece with um like bits of spoken word over the top of it and those that spoken word passage will reappear in the final track kingdom of the tyrants which has to stand as the most melodic thing this band's ever done but it's still like sinister and fucked up enough it, it doesn't feel unreasonable as a cattle decapitation song but bloody hell, like this this song's incredible. I, I was I was blown away when I first got this album. Like the the band had made a shift to do something like this, and yet it still kind of fit. The song is 
incredibly memorable and catchy, but still featuring loads of Travis's like absolutely brutal vocals. It's just written in such a way that it's like, incredibly engaging and a really good kind of cap to this already excellent album. So what could be better than Capital Decapitation releasing one of the strongest albums of their career? Well, in my personal opinion, we have, I think, the second debut in this this list. This is Australia's Neobliviscaris with Portal of Eye. So, for those of you who are not familiar with Neobliviscaris, they sort of play a kind of mixture of black and death metal mixed with some kind of neoclassical kind of elements and more kind of rock elements. The core of their sound is you've got you kind of two guitarists, bass and drums, harsh vocalist, then clean vocalist and violinist Tim Charles adds a lot of the kind of more melodic elements to this kind of sound. Possibly it's unfair to even credit this strictly as being a debut because the band were formed in the early 2000s and released a demo in 2007 that's gained them a lot of popularity. I came across them in 2012 when this album came out. So they had this gap between the first demo and the first album of five years to perfect this sound and what they came out with was this incredible like 70 minute long seven track epic of highly technical, highly progressive, incredibly complex 
extreme prog metal, essentially. Previous episodes, I've actually said I prefer the next album, Citadel, to this one. And going back and listening to this in a lot of depth, I'm not sure I do anymore. I used to, I used to say this one was a bit overblown. I think I was wrong on that. Uh, yeah, so I hold my hands up there. This is... This is an incredible... It is an overblown album, but not in a bad way. Like, the the amount of elements going on are mind-blowing. The the changes in pace, the tr massive changes in direction from song to song, or even just, like, minute of song to the next, are incredible. Like, you know, worthy of Opeth at the top of their game. The album starts as well in a very... Um, kind of deceptive way. Like, the, the first song, uh, Tapestry of the Starless Abstract, just comes in absolutely like blasting with Xenor producing these really harsh like black metal shrieks over this very tight technical almost death metal sounding riffing and it isn't until about three minutes into the song we start hearing like an edge of a violin come in and then we move into some really melodic moments it's it's incredible there's so many fun little moves between stuff in the songs like often they'll use They'll go into a bit where there's more like acoustic driven guitar over a part. And the bass will start playing this cool melody that will then be repeated as the main melody of the next heavy part they're gonna go into. The bass work on this album is utterly insane. It's it's I'd say personally I might actually prefer it to Alex Webster's bass work on torture. It's it, the the incredible variety between songs, like there's lots of very clean, like, almost lead-driven bass playing and paces. There's these cool kind of, like, tapping sections between songs. And the bass gets a really nice position in the mix, despite the kind of harsh attack of the two guitars. Something I, I've got a bit confused about with this, and I can't... Like, going on Metal Archives, I think I have the answer, but I'm not entirely sure. So, their long-time drummer, Daniel Presland, sort of quits the band in around 2012 to rejoin, like, a year or so later... And on Metal Archives, he's credited as being the drummer on the album, but uh, Nelson Barnes is credited as the drummer in the CD, so I'm not quite sure what's going on there. Either way, whoever is drumming on this, the performance is utterly excellent. Like, um, Daniel Presland is definitely one of those modern drummers in like the Hannes Grossman vein, where he will just hold down these incredible blasts for an immensely long time and with the precision that can let a band like Near Blitzkart just go off the rails and do kind of crazy things around it. Some really fun moments as well, like right in the middle of the album we get essentially the title, like the kind of title of the band track, the Forget Not, which is the like English translation of Nibble of Scarus, which starts in this incredibly gentle melodic fashion with this slow build-up of like clean tone guitar and violin like playing this really gentle melody and then like a bass bit comes in and adds like a cool like the bass and drums come in adding a cool groove underneath it and it builds and builds and it takes about four minutes to go from this really gentle melody into full-on like melodic death metal excellence the like the interplay of tim's vocals and Zenor's like harsh vocals is really fun as well the, the, the one criticism I have of Neil Blitzkaris is I don't love Tim Charles's vocals. They're not... He, he's competently... Like, definitely a very competent singer. He just sometimes comes across a little bit like saccharine. But then Zenor is just this absolutely excellent, harsh vocalist. Like, they've got a very good death metal voice and a very good black metal voice in them as well. And the counterplay of the two of them, it, it, it's enough to kind of cover any faults that there might be there. 
the album's actually excellently produced for for a debut. It's ridiculous, but it's clear it's clear where the five years went. Like these guys really took the time to hone their craft, get the album down to its essential elements, and it's just absolutely brilliant. Uh, yeah, I used I don't know why I used to feel there was some fat on this, but like I've re-listened to it about five times in the last week and. I couldn't tell you where that was now, so clearly I was just talking nonsense in the past. One of the few criticism I've got of it is some of the song titles verge on the extremely pretentious um, of Patriarch Weaves Black Noise uh, and Plague Flowers the Kaleidoscope. Like, you don't need to start a track name with dot 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 and Plague Flowers the Kaleidoscope would have been fine, but, you know, it, it fits with the neoclassical. It fits with this kind of very big bombastic sound they've got you need completely over the top lyrics to work with this and I, I think Nibble of Scarus although maybe not a band that have gone on to great levels of influence they are a, a band that are just incredible if you've ever seen them live they perfectly reproduce this hyper complex music and I, I mentioned this before but I've always loved them for when I saw them on tour supporting Enslaved with also Oceans of Slumber and support, um, seeing Oceans of Slumber and Nibble of Scaris lose their mind getting to watch Enslaved play live, like from the side stage, was, was absolutely brilliant. So you can tell, like, they're proper metal nerds and metal enthusiasts who have just got to this point where they're able to compete with the absolute best of the genre. Yeah, I'm sure we'll come back and talk about Near Blue of the Scars more, so I'll probably leave that there because this episode's running pretty long already. If you've never checked out Portal of Eye, I highly recommend giving it a go. And much like quite a few of these albums near the top, it's certainly a unique listen. So, hit us up, let us know what I've missed from this 2012 list. I'm sure there's some absolute classics that I've I've overlooked in my research. Um, and we've, as I say, we've got the... Um, We've got the shows coming up for every subsequent year, so if you, you've got albums you think I should be checking out, particularly like 2013, 2014, hit me up so I can get into those a little bit ahead of time. I'm going to be continuing doing this, like trying to get one of these out a month. I think as well, you may have noticed I'm going to run into a problem soon because we've already done a 2016, 2017, and 2018 show. My thoughts on that are basically, with the 2016 show, I don't like the list we produced at all for that between me and Rob, so... I'm going to tear that apart and do a completely new one. 2017, 2018, I I think we were closer to spilling a lot of the good stuff. There's a few albums we missed out, so what I might do for 2017, 2018 is do it as one quick show where I just talk about the few additions I've got to the lists I already produced, and then 2019, me and Rob will probably do one together, although I might separately drop my top 15, and then early next year... We'll, we'll do a big summary of, like, my top ten albums of the decade. be interesting if you can predict any of the ones that are going to be in there. There's certainly some we've talked about enough, I think, um, I think would be unsurprising are going to make that list. Anyway, yes, yeah, so if you want to get in touch, uh, hit us up on Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook, at Breakfast Metal on Twitter, or if you want to send us an email for, like, a more long-form discussion, uh, metal at gmail.com. If you could, you know... Drop us a rating and review on iTunes, that would be amazing. But more than anything, you know, just share this with your friends. If you've got any any people who are as nerdy as, as I am and like this kind of in-depth stuff, please let them know about it. Um, yeah, that would be a great help. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening. 